So I'm going to give you two, uh, two teachings tonight. Okay? So actually, I mean, they kind of flow together, but there's one, and then there's a definite change of direction that Paul takes. But we'll begin right in verse 7. We have over the last couple of weeks, due to circumstances beyond my control, uh, been in and out of chapter 14 and 15 and kind of hovering here a little bit. But picking up in verse 7 of Romans 15, and we'll continue on through the rest of the chapter. Paul writes, therefore, accept one another. Why does he say therefore? Because in chapter 14 and chapter 15, he's talking about accepting the one who is weak in faith. Saying those who are strong ought to bear with those who are weak. Not bear with as and put up with, but do whatever we need to do to help along those who are weak, those who are struggling. And I I told you before, I can be the weak on any, any given day. Or I can be the strong. It really depends on where I'm at and where my faith is and how I'm walking with the Lord. Sometimes I need people stronger than me to bear with me and bring me along. Sometimes I need to be the one who is stronger in faith, bearing with a weaker brother or sister and helping them along. Paul talks about this and talks about our acceptance in Jesus, how Jesus handled all these things. And then he says, therefore, accept one another. Just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And that is profound. Because the bar is set at Jesus. My acceptance of you, your acceptance of me, is set at Jesus. And how far did He go to accept us? Well, we all know the answer. He went straight to the tomb. And then back out again. He went to the cross. He went through all the brutality. He bore the sin of the world to accept us. But taking this just a step further, I find it interesting to ask, what exactly does Paul mean by accept one another, just as Christ has accepted you? And that word accept that he uses is pros lombano, which is two words really put together in the Greek, and it's the way the Greeks do it. Pros meaning to take, and lombano, which means toward. So we are to take toward one another, take each other toward each other. In other words, to receive unto. That's really what the word translated accept is. It's to receive someone unto yourself. It's also the same word that's used to describe welcoming a friend at the door. You open the door, your friend's there, and and what you do as you invite them in is proslambano. You take them toward you. You bring them in to you. You know what's marvelous about this is Jesus completely turned it around. He's not the one in the house welcoming us in. He's the one on the outside knocking, asking to be welcomed in. He has actually come after us, pursued us, to welcome us from the outside in. And in that verse, Revelation 3 verse 10, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You all are familiar with that. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. But you Bible students know he is not talking about non-believers there. He is talking to the church. He is saying to the church in Revelation 3.10, If you, I'm, I'm standing here, I'm knocking, are you open? Are you as a church, as my people, will you welcome me in? Because you see, he's done everything to accept us. And then he turns it around and the welcome of Jesus is demonstrated in the visitation of Jesus. That's how he welcomes you, by showing up on your doorstep and knocking. And you open the door and he's welcoming you as you bring him into your heart, into your home, into our church fellowship. That's the attitude of Jesus. Divine acceptance is divine pursuit. He accepts you, accepts me by pursuing us. And you know this. Jesus went hard after the lost all the way to Calvary. And He goes all in for the saved as He continues to knock on the door of the hearts of saved people as well as lost asking that we would welcome Him and be welcomed by Him. So again, it's the acceptance by pursuit. That's, that's the mentality of Jesus. And the welcome acceptance of Jesus is what then leads the Apostle Paul into the world of the Gentiles. When Paul realized his sinful state in the presence of the Lord, when he fell down there on the road to Damascus, blinded in his eyes, but certainly not in his heart, he spent three days thinking about and soaking in who he was and who Jesus really was and the fact that he had actually been persecuting the very Lord he thought he was serving. 
And he comes around in this thinking and realizes, if I am to be so accepted, then who else? Who is the most unaccepted in the world, at least from Paul's perspective? You know, in Paul's day, there were just two kinds of people. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. Now, as Paul came to faith, he realized there were actually three kinds of people. There were Jews, there were Gentiles, and there were Christians. And that's it. Everybody falls into one of those three categories. You're either a Jew, you're a Gentile, or you're a Christian. Now, you can be a Jewish Christian, but if you give your heart to Jesus, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are now a Christian, a follower of Christ. So, those are the three categories. And Paul, for his part, a Jew among Jews, a Pharisee among Pharisees, having been accepted by the pursuit of the Lord, turns his life around and decides by the inspiration of the Spirit to go to the unacceptable Gentile. And that's what he begins to talk about now in verse 8. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. That is, he became a servant to the Jews, the circumcision. He uses this word peritome, and it's the circumcision, but anytime he says that, he's talking about the Jews. And he's talking specifically about Jews who hang all their hopes on their Jewishness. Even some Christian Jews who are still clinging to their circumcision for their salvation, and Paul would deal with that, we'll see in the book of Galatians. But he says to the circumcision, Jesus became the truth. He became a servant to them on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And verse 9... For the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy. Notice the difference. To the Jews, Jesus became a servant of the truth, confirming everything that was promised. To the Gentiles, Jesus became a servant of mercy. You see, the Gentiles didn't get the promises. The Jews did. The Jews got the covenants, and the Jews got the law, and the Jews got all the prophecies. That was all to the Jewish people. But to the Gentile, what did they need more than anything else? It wasn't truth. It was mercy. It was grace. And doesn't that sum up the character of Jesus? He goes to the Jews and he brings truth. He goes to the Gentiles and he brings grace. And John writes in John 1.17 that the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. But it's so well put. I mean, Paul just says the Jews needed the truth. They still do to this day. You want to bring a Jewish person to faith in Jesus, show them through the Hebrew Scriptures the fulfillment of the promises. Show them the truth. You want to bring a Gentile to Jesus, you show them grace. Either way it works because Jesus brings both. And to further express that God's divine intention was not new to the Gentiles. It wasn't like all of a sudden, well, the Jews, they said no, so who's left? Oh, the Gentiles, we'll try them. That wasn't it. The the intention was always Jew and Gentile, always. And Paul proves it in the next few verses, verse 9. He goes on and says, and for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy, as it is written... Therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles, and I will sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. And Paul draws all of that from the Hebrew Scriptures. It's brilliant. He's writing to a church that's filled with Jews and Gentiles. So he's reaching both audiences within one new group of people, within this new group called Christians. But notice this. Don't skip by it too quickly. He quotes four verses. And it's important to recognize why these four. He quotes first Psalm 18, which says again, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. The word Gentiles there is nations, the ethnos. In the Hebrew, it's the goyim. But it's always the nations. I will give praise to you among the nations, Psalm 1849, and that verse is Jesus speaking. It's a messianic psalm. And Paul taps it and says, see, look, the Messiah, and Jews would know this, they would know Psalm 18 is a messianic statement. This is Messiah speaking 
Messiah says, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. Now, if they really read that, it would have been shocking. Because most Jews in Paul's day wouldn't even talk to a Gentile. Much less give praise to God and serve together in worship. But Paul says, no, see, that's what Messiah says. And then the next verse, rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people, verse 10, is Deuteronomy 32, 43, which is a Gentile invitation in the Jewish law. I mean, he pulls out of Deuteronomy. That's part of Torah, man. That's Jewish territory. And yet in the Jewish territory, there's an invitation to the Gentiles to join in. Then after that, he goes on, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people praise Him. That's Psalm 117, verse 1. There's only two verses in Psalm 117. It's the shortest book in the Bible, shortest among all the Psalms. And what's interesting about Psalm 117 is it's sung among what's called the Hallel Psalms. The Hallel Psalms. The Jewish people would sing the Hallel Psalms going up to and out from the temple, especially on feast days. They would sing the praises, the Hallel and here in the midst of the Hallel and this tiny little psalm, the, the Gentiles are invited to sing along. Paul draws from that as well. And finally, he points to Isaiah. And this comes out of Isaiah chapter 11. It's actually verse 10 that he quotes. If you compare verse 10 here of Isaiah 11 and compare it to Isaiah 11.10 in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's going to read differently. Why is that? Any scholarly suggestions why? The Septuagint. Remember that Paul is quoting many of... Whenever you see a disparity in the way something's translated in English in the New Testament versus an Old Testament verse, it's because the translation has come from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. So it's gone already from Hebrew to Greek and now to English, so that's why it looks slightly different. But it's Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Isaiah 11 is one of the great messianic uh, passages. It's one of the prophecies of Messiah. Think about what Paul just did. Talking about God's promises now to the Gentiles... He did what we talked about on Sunday morning, back in verse 4. Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Earlier times. What was written beforehand, the the prographo, the first writings, right? The Hebrew Scriptures. And Paul intentionally draws these four verses, and note this, I love it. He takes four verses from the three sections of the Hebrew Bible. He covers all three. He makes sure each one is touched. First from Torah, Deuteronomy 32, first five books. And then from what's called the Nevi'im, or the prophets. He pulls out Isaiah chapter 11. And finally from the Ketuvim, or the the writings, he pulls out Psalm 18 and Psalm 117. What Paul has just done is drawn from every major group of the Hebrew Scriptures to prove that God has always had a heart for the Gentiles. That's amazing. This guy was brilliant. But this guy was inspired. And what the Holy Spirit is saying here is, Jew and Gentile, I've got a heart for you. And I want you both. I want to bring you both together. It was the plan all along. Welcome by pursuit. God first pursued the Jews, calling them His chosen people. When rejected, He turned and then pursues the Gentiles, bringing them in as well. He will pursue Israel again, as we talked about in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So this once more supports what Paul has been saying all along, and it's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.14. Speaking of Jesus, He Himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, which was the law. The law which divided, Jesus came in and fulfilled so that Gentile and Jew alike can now come in together. And remember, the church at Rome was both. It was Jewish, it was Gentile, they were together now in this new unity. And and Paul is saying here, man, the gospel, the gospel, it was and it is and it ever will be for Jews and Gentiles alike. What does that mean? It means for the entire world. Because remember, I said just a few minutes ago, there's Jews, there are Gentiles, and there are Christians. And the gospel is now going out to Jews and Gentiles. Christians already have it. In fact, we're the ones bringing it. Keep that in mind. This is acceptance by pursuit. And Jesus said, If I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. 
John chapter 12, verse 32. Verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you can't get there without Him. You can't get the joy or the peace, and you will not abound in hope without the power of the Holy Spirit. You just can't do it on your own. Now that's not to say there's not joy and peace and hope in the world. There is. You know, you can find joy. You can go to a party and and have a joyful evening, and it's over when you get home. You can find peace. You can go out by a river on a cool afternoon and listen to the birdies sing and the water trickle by and be in a moment of peace. But you're going to have to get back into the car and go back through the traffic and make your way back to the screaming kids. And you know what I'm talking about. It's not a lasting peace. And what about hope? Oh, man. Man, I hope this trip to the dentist doesn't hurt. Man, I hope this movie was worth the the price of admission. Now, man, I hope this person treats me well. I mean, all these hopes that are just fleeting, they come, they go, they're gone. But by the power of the Spirit, joy remains in sorrow. And peace remains even in the midst of turmoil. And hope goes out to the hopeless. These are things that by the Spirit's power will last and are eternal and don't go away simply because of circumstance. That's a huge difference. When people ask, what's the difference between being a Christian and being a non-believer? What's really the difference? Well, one of them is I have a joy that's always there. I have a hope that's always there. That no matter what's going on in my life, it doesn't go away. It's still there. On the worst of possible days, I still have peace. How about you? When you don't even know where you're going, when you don't know what's going to happen, when you don't know that you are loved and you're saved, and God is at work in your life, how can you have any of that, truly? I mean, I'm talking ongoing. It all comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, for the rest of chapter 15, that was part one. The rest of chapter 15, what we see, what Paul lays out before us is interesting. It's what I would call the exemplary ministry of Paul. He describes to the people at Rome his own ministry. He'll do this from time to time in his writings. He describes what he's about and what he's doing and and what it looks like. Why is he doing that? To give us an example. To show us how to live. Now we have that in Jesus. But Paul would also come along, and this is not arrogance, but Paul says, 1 Corinthians 11.1, Be imitators of me, as I also am of Christ. Which I think is right on. Anybody that you know in your life who is following Jesus, follow after. Now the moment they stop following Jesus or they veer off the path, don't continue following them. You follow Jesus. But it is okay, it is alright to follow someone who is following Christ. That's why we have leadership in the church. It's why we have pastors like Les. You know, there are examples to follow. There are people you can look to and say, okay, that guy's following Jesus. She is, is following after God. I'm going to follow that example. I'm going to look at that example. I'm going to pattern my life kind of like that. Because in essence, we are little Jesus, right? Christians, little Christ, miniature examples of Jesus. That's what we're called to be. And so Paul says, I want you to do this. I want you to follow me like I follow Christ. Listen to this. Let me read it to you. It's uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 where he even affirms this more. He says, brethren, join in following my example. Now, there's only two ways you can say that. One is the height of arrogance. Follow me, because I got it down. Oh, yeah. Or, it's the height or the, the depths, perhaps, of humility. Follow me, because the only good that's in me is him anyway. Follow me because I am following Jesus. Paul says, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. So who are you going to follow? 
Are you going to follow me, Paul says, as I'm as I am pursuing Jesus with all I am? Or are you going to follow I can, I can name so many people and I won't. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I want to, I'm not going to. Think about who we follow in our culture. Think about who people emulate, who people want to look like or dress like or talk like or sing like or act like. And and Paul says, with tears in my eyes, if you're following after people who are not following Jesus, you are following to the end of destruction. Why do we do it? Why do we do it? Why do we try to emulate people whose God is destruction? Paul says, no, our citizenship, this is Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, here's the thing, my end game is is heaven. It's being with Him. So if you follow me, guess what? You're going in the right direction, because that's where I'm going. But if you follow some of these other stars, you know, these celebrities, these people who who the world just glorifies and worships, whose end is destruction. I was listening to the radio coming back from uh, dropping the girls off or bringing the girls back from ballet tonight. And as I was listening, I was flipping channel, channel. At first I was listening to the news, but what they were saying was so vile, I didn't want the girls to hear it. And this was just a normal news station. So I flipped over to some music. It was no better. So I flipped to the next channel. I went from 50s to 60s to 70s to 80s to 90s and finally on into the the, uh, coffee house mix. I could not find a song that I wanted the girls to listen to. At least at that moment, bad set of songs. (laughs) Why would I want to follow that when I can follow Jesus? And Paul says, that's what the deal is. I'm following Jesus. So, So take my example. So the reason I'm pointing all this out is that this is the rest of the chapter. Paul is giving us a picture of ministry. And I would encourage you, look at Paul here and emulate this. This is a great example of how to live a life of ministry. Some might say, well, Rick, I'm not in ministry. Oh, yes, you are. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a minister of Jesus Christ. You are in ministry. Call it service if you like, if that's easier for you. But you are ministering. And you are called to ministry, just as Paul was, and you need to ask the question, how is my citizen ministry, how is my citizen service like Paul's? Let's let that be the test for the rest of our time this evening. Verse 14, And concerning you, my brethren, Paul writes, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness filled with all knowledge and able to admonish one another. What a great encouraging word. Paul says, saints at Rome, I'm so impressed with you. Everything I hear coming out of Rome regarding you is good. And you know your stuff. And you're good with and you're you're capable of, of encouraging and spurring one another on. That's all good. But he says in verse 15, I've written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you again. Let me ask you, has he written boldly in the book of Romans? He'd be called a a hate speecher. (laughs) Just for writing what he wrote in our country. He says, I've written boldly to give you certain points to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He says, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. Some things to note about this. First of all, this is a very Jewish description of ministry. Notice how he talks about the Gentiles are his offering, and he's a priest. So the first thing to understand, if you are patterning yourself after Paul, after Jesus is that we have engaged in, we are part of a priestly ministry. You have a priestly ministry. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Those are all quotes of the Hebrew Scriptures talking about Israel, but Peter's talking to Gentiles. And he says, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Welcome to the family Gentile priests. 
You know, it struck me reading this that until, until Jesus came, a Gentile priest was a pagan. That's the only way you could be a priest and be a Gentile is you had to be a pagan, a pagan priest. But now in Christ Jesus, we become a royal priesthood. We have a priestly ministry. And that's so important to grasp because as we've been talking about now the last several weeks, we are headed for the kingdom age. So everything we do as priests in this age is preparation to be priests in that age. Revelation 1.6, He has made us a kingdom. Priests to His God and Father, to Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you are in a priestly ministry. I know that's weird to hear. Some of you are still stuck on ministry. You're still saying, how am I a minister? I I don't get that. And now I'm I'm supposed to be a priest? Well, don't get your robes all in a bunch yet. Just hang with this thought and let let it soak a little bit. Let it percolate in your mind and in your heart. This is a priestly ministry. It is a high priestly calling and every follower of Jesus has it. But it's also, secondly, a personal ministry. It is a personal ministry. So this is not priestly in that like the Hebrew priests, you were separated out and and stuck in the temple to do the services in the temple. And really, as a Levite, kind of set apart from the rest of Israel. No, we are a priestly ministry, but we also have a personal ministry. Which means we are priests among the people. We are priests who roll up our sleeves and get down and dirty with humanity. A personal ministry. For Paul, it was always personal. You read his letters. He says things like we read in Philippians 3. I say this with tears in my eyes. I'm weeping while I'm writing. Because he feels so passionately everything he's saying. It's always personal. This was not Paul's job. What was Paul's job? He was a tent maker. If he had to make money, that's how he did it. If he had support from others to to do what he really wanted to do, then he just was being his priestly self. But it was personal. It wasn't a social custom. Far too many Christians feel that Christianity is a social thing. They come on Sunday morning because they want you know, bagels and donuts and coffee. And it's free here. And I can do that and I can get some worship in, you know, which helps how I look. But you know, it's a social thing. This is when I come to fellowship. Guess what? Fellowshipping happens on Sunday morning, but I come to worship. And I come to be in the Word. And we come to honor a holy God, not to bite a donut. And I know I'm totally preaching to the choir because most of you don't even like donuts, I'm sure. But It's not a social custom. It's also not a tradition. This was not traditional with Paul. Being a Jew was traditional. Being a Pharisee, yeah, that was his tradition. But for Paul, his ministry was personal. You'll see three times in his letters, we've already seen it once. Three times in the letters of Paul, he kind of lets slip what his real heart is in the matter. He says in Romans 2.16, On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. What? My gospel? You mean the gospel. You didn't make this up, Paul. But then again, Romans 16.25, he says, He is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past. That's the second time you said that, Paul. Dude, dial it back. It's not your gospel. It's the gospel. And then the third time, to Timothy, in his last letter, Paul writes, 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel. And finally, the third time, I get it. It is Paul's gospel. And it's my gospel too. The phraseology we use, I think, is important. People will say, Hey, I've been going to your church. I'm like, It's not my church. If if you're part of this fellowship, it's your church. It's your deal. And it's mine. That's how we we term it. It's, It's my church. I own it, man. This is my fellowship. These are my people. This is my church, and I don't mean my church like some senior pastor sitting on high. That's just stupid. We were having a conversation with with a group of people who are um, invested in 
what's it, we'll be talking about this with y'all, but it's a, an account by a company called Symbol, and these folks all invested, and those investments are, are a large part of what helped pay for this building. More on that, not now, but like on Sunday. But we had a meeting with those people who were involved in investing. And we were talking about it, and as the meeting went on, uh, Chris Walcott, who's a great guy, a believer, works for Symbol. Symbol's a Christian organization. They do phenomenal work. But he kept referring to the church. And he kept saying to those who were gathered there, he kept saying, now, what the church is asking you to do is this, or what the church would like to see is this. And finally, I just raised my hand and said, Chris, I understand what you're saying. I get the phraseology. But the bottom line is, and I looked at everybody and said, you're the church. This is not some organization over here that is asking you to help it out. No, if you do this, you're helping yourself. You know, if we gather together, guess who we're blessing? Each other. Obviously the Lord. But this is our thing. This is us. This is, we're all together in this. So Paul uses that same mentality with the Gospel. He owns it. Do you? Is this your Gospel? When you talk about Jesus, do you say, listen, i got to tell you about my good news. Not the good news. Not some good news. Not another person's good news. Not my church's testimony. Yours. This is my good news. You know, for, for whatever God has done for everybody else, let me tell you what He's done for me. Let me tell you why I follow Jesus. It's my gospel. And it was always Paul's gospel. It was always personal. And note this, he says in verse 18, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and by deed. That's your best evangelism. It's not memorizing a bunch of verses and then sitting someone down and force-feeding them Bible. Your best evangelism is sitting down with someone and saying, let me tell you what Jesus is doing in my life right now. Let me tell you why I keep following. Let me tell you who He is to me. It's what He's accomplished through us. It's personal. It's priestly and it's personal. And by the way, it's also powerful. Thirdly, you have a powerful ministry. Look at verse 19. Paul says, In the power of signs and wonders and in the power of the Spirit. So that from Jerusalem and round about, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. This is power. You, listen to the words he uses. Signs, wonders, power. That's how he describes his ministry. A powerful ministry. And rightly so, Paul's was a powerful ministry in signs and wonders and power. I still don't fully comprehend why we don't see the signs and wonders and power that Paul saw. We're still in the same church age, aren't we? Why, why do we expect it to be different today than it was for Paul? Why don't we live at least assuming and expecting God to do miraculous, amazing, big things? Signs, powers, wonders, Paul's word. And listen to the description of this. Here's a bit of of the signs and wonders from Paul's ministry. Acts 14, he heals a man who had been lame his entire life. Born with useless legs, and now the man was walking. In Acts 16, he cast out demons. In Ephesus, he performed, quote, extraordinary miracles, we're told in Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 20... After writing this letter to to the Romans, Paul has an unusual incident where a young man falls asleep during his teaching. I know, right? (laughs) Falls asleep during his teaching, falls out the window and dies. Eutychus. And Paul raises Eutychus back to life. So now Paul's raising the dead. That's powerful. That's science. That's wonders. And we know he shook a deadly viper off his hand and into the fire on the beach of Melita. I would love to see the the videotape of that. You know, chomp. Ah. (laughs) Shake. And all the natives on the island thought he was a god. Because this poisonous, deadly viper didn't kill him. He just shook it off. He beat Taylor Swift to the punch. (laughs) And he shook it off. All of these are examples of Paul's power 
powerful ministry. Listen, the power was not Paul's sparkling personality. In fact, and Paul, I will apologize to in person one day for saying this, but I have a sense that perhaps his personality was not altogether too sparkling. (laughs) Paul was the one who said to John Mark, no, you can't come with me again. You blew it, Buster. Get out of here. Paul was, man, he was driven and passionate and zealous for Jesus. And if you got in his way, he was going to run right over you. And he wept for the church and he loved the church. But don't think for a moment it was because Paul was this amazing, gifted guy that all these things happened. No amount of personality can cause a deadly snake to have no effect. No amount of personality is going to raise the dead. Paul had a power in his ministry. And look back at verse 13. We're told that the God of hope will fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that we will abound in hope by what? The power of the Holy Spirit. So it was the Spirit in Paul. It was the work of God in Paul and through Paul. All Paul did was believe Him for it. All Paul did was accept that God truly was God. And he did not deny the power of the Godhead in his life. And because of that, Paul had a powerful ministry. Is there spiritual power in your ministry? Boy, I'll tell you what, I can, I can embrace, personally I can embrace a priestly ministry. I kind of like the sound of that, you know, again with the honking hats, <laughs> the robes, you know, I can, I can, and, and personal ministry, I like that. I like the one-on-one and being with people and, and, and I, I'm fascinated by people, so it's a good thing, personal ministry. Yeah, I can do that. Powerful ministry. Hmm. Is my ministry Powerful. I mean, ask yourself, is there power in your service? What we tend to do is go, oh, okay, i got to start working on this. No, no, you can't. You can't work up the power. You can't gen it up. Okay, we're going to have a little power. Let's have a little power here. No, that's not how it works. You're just going to look like an idiot going like this, you know? No, the power is given by the Spirit, comes from the Spirit Himself. 1 Corinthians 12.7 says, To each one is given. And listen to this, Paul says, The manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In 1 Corinthians 12.11, and I'm excited because we're coming into 1 Corinthians pretty quickly after this. He says in verse 11, chapter 12, One and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as He wills. The Spirit looks and says, I want Cheryl to be imbued with this power. I'm going to give Rick this power. I'm going to deal with different people differently. Flo's going to have this unique power. And the Spirit distributes. Because you know what the Spirit sees that I don't see? The big picture. All I see is right here. And so he says, Rick, I have you here. This is what you need for this time and place. And this is what I'm going to empower you to do. But so often we have this wrong mentality of the work of the Spirit, of, the, of spiritual power. Listen, the power of the Holy Spirit and the manifestation of the Holy Spirit are the same thing. And again, we'll get into this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The power of the Spirit and the manifestation of the Spirit are the same thing. In other words, you don't have one without the other. The Spirit doesn't give you some kind of spiritual power and then wander off to deal with someone else. If there is spiritual power flowing in your life and ministry, it's because the Spirit is manifest. He's present. So He's the one working His power in you because He's present in you. Show of hands, how many of you believe the Holy Spirit resides in you as a follower of Jesus? Okay. Then we should see His power. Because He's there. I know I'm making some people uncomfortable already because you're like, how far is this going to go? Are we going to start having healings here? What's the deal, Rick? Where are you going? Understand where the true spiritual power is at work. The Holy Spirit Himself, Jesus' Spirit, is manifest, is seen, is present. And so, as Paul said back in verse 13, where there is joy, there should be no sorrow. 
Or even where there's sorrow, there's always joy. Or where there's turmoil, there's always peace. Or where there's hopelessness, there's always hope for those who are imbued with the power of the Spirit. But here's what we've done in the church. And I are guilty. Here's what we've done. We have tragically made this more a doctrinal debate than a practical function of ministry. We argue over, we discuss, we debate. What does he mean by spiritual gifts? For one thing, the word gift isn't even there. Throw it out. 1 Corinthians 12.1, it's pneumatikos. It's spirituals. There's no other way to define it. He doesn't give us spiritual gifts. He gives us spirituals. He gives us spiritual power, pneumatikos, which comes by the presence of the Spirit and the working of the Spirit. But we sit down here and we debate if it's doctrinally sound or not to say that someone can be healed. Or to say that speaking in tongues is allowable. Are we going to allow that in this place? Is that okay? Well, let's get in and open up the Scriptures and let's look at what the Bible says and we go through long Bible studies and, and try to come to conclusions. And meanwhile, God's going, Really? I mean, how often do you go out into your front yard and before getting in your car to drive anywhere, try to figure out how it works? (laughs) Now, I know some of you do. I know some of you are very bright that way. I'm not, man. I turn the key and I I expect it to start. And when it doesn't, it's like AAA. This thing's not working. I just need you to fix it so I can do what I need to do. My assumption is the car is going to be powered. And I believe that the Lord would teach us to have that same assumption with the Holy Spirit in our lives. My ministry, my gospel is going to be powered by the Spirit. What does that look like? I don't know. Depends on what He's going to do to you. It depends on how He's going to work in your life. It's going to be different than me. I, I can guarantee that. Because He distributes to each one individually as He wills. But nonetheless, the power is to be present. And it is vital for priests in training because I guarantee you that our function in the kingdom age will be all about the power of God. We will be fully in glorified bodies and we will be a powerful priestly nation. Serving Jesus, loving people in this world. We need the power. Now, I've said this before, and I'll I'll move on, but to my way of thinking, and it's taken me a long time to get here, my friends, running without the baptism of the Holy Spirit is like running on half power. You'll have power, you will survive, you know, there are plenty of Christians in the world who are holding to a form of godliness while denying its power. There are lots of Christians in the world who have said, I just don't want that baptism of the Holy Spirit thing. And I believe the the Father loves us all enough to say, okay, but you're only going to be able to go 30 in a 60. You know? You're driving a golf cart, man, and I've got a Maserati for you. (laughs) And Jesus is the one, never forget this, Jesus is the one who termed it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, Jesus is the one who said, hey, not many days from now, you're going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. He said it. I didn't make that up. I didn't give it from some Pentecostal in the early 1900s. No, Jesus said that. Jesus said, I have this for you, this dunamis, this, this power. Now, bring this all back, because we're talking about ministry here, right? That's what the power is for. It's not to ignite yourself in front of a bunch of people and go, oh, look, I'm so powerful. It's about ministry. What was, think about this, the most spiritually powerful thing Paul did in all of his missionary adventures? Look at verse 19 again. He says, "...in the power of signs and wonders and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have what? Fully preached. The Gospel of Christ." Paul is all about the power of the Holy Spirit and suddenly, rather than describing every single one of the miracles that I described to you out of the book of Acts, what Paul describes is the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to a preaching ministry. That is the number one place where the power of God is manifest in your life is through the preaching of Jesus. 
It's not in the healing of someone, though that will happen. And it's not in speaking in tongues, though some have it. And it's not in this, that, or the other. It is in the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where the power is most needed. And I believe that's where the power is most provided for every follower of Jesus. Look, I'm not the only one in this room called to a preaching ministry. You are too. I'm sorry, you can try and skirt the issue, but dude, you're called to preach. And you are called to preach the Word and to get after it. That word preach is euangelizo. To evangelize. We've seen it over and over. It's to proclaim, it's to announce the good news. And Paul says that's the deal. And he says in verse 20, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel. Not where Christ was already named. I like this. So that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, They who had no news of him shall see. And they who have not heard shall understand. A preaching ministry. And it's clear from what Paul says here that he was not into transfer growth. Paul was not the kind of pastor who moved into a town and set up a church and began to do everything he could to draw off of all the churches in the area. And by the way, in my opinion, I think that borders on sinful. Not that someone comes to the bridge from another church, that's okay. (laughs) But that a pastor would determine to be the biggest thing on the site by pulling from everywhere else that he can. That's just wrong. That is not the work of the gospel. That's geography. That's now moving this Christian over to here, and this Christian over to here, and then this Christian over to here. And that's not new growth. You know what new growth is? It's what we see every spring in Washington, and I love it. I drive down my driveway, and I've got fir trees on both sides, big tall fir trees, and the ends are these bright green colors, new growth. And you know that that's going to deepen and darken and become the larger part of the tree. And then the next year there's going to be more new growth, and more new growth. And Paul was all about the new growth. He says in 1 Corinthians 3.6, I planted, and Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now Paul, for his part, in his preaching ministry, was always new growth. Which is why he says, I planted, and then Apollos watered. So Apollos came on after Paul planted Corinth, and left, Apollos came on and taught in Corinth. And Paul was like, hey, that's great. That's wonderful. We need that. But as for me, as for my ministry, the Apostle says, I want to go where it hasn't gone. Where no man has gone before. (laughs) He was the original Captain Kirk. All right? Captain Paul. And he went to those places where nobody had heard Jesus. No one knew the Gospel. Who do you know that doesn't know Jesus? If you have friends who are attending another church fellowship and love the Lord, leave them alone. In fact, encourage them in their ministry at their church. Don't invite them here. And if someone, again, please don't get me wrong, if someone comes to the bridge from another church and the Lord has led you, that's between you and the Lord, but that is not our purpose. Who do you know that doesn't know Jesus? Who do you know that's lost? Bring them. Oh, but they won't come. Have you asked? Well, I have once. Ask again. And maybe next time before you ask, pray for the power of the Spirit to help you to preach the Word so that they will want to come. New growth. New growth. By the way, listen to the context of the verse that he quotes there in verse 21. He says, They who had no news of Him shall see, and they who had not heard shall understand. It comes from Isaiah 52. Verse 14. Let me start with the verse before it, which says, His appearance was marred more than any man, and His form more than the sons of men. And then Isaiah writes, Thus He will sprinkle many nations, goyim, Gentiles. Kings will shut their mouths on account of Him. For what had not been told them, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand. And so where Paul's quoting from, he's saying the Gospel is the sprinkled blood of Jesus on lost people, making them saved. That's the simple Gospel. And it's something that was never before proclaimed among the nations. They didn't get it. The nations didn't get it. They looked at Israel with their temple and their animal sacrifices and they were like, I don't, I don't know why they do that. 
A lot of those nations were sacrificing babies and saying, well, you know, you've got to give it up for your God. And they looked to the Jewish people and they just didn't understand. And a lot of the Jewish people didn't understand the sacrifices. They just knew they were told to do it, so they did it. The whole thing was boiling down to one final point. That was the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross so that His blood now is sprinkled. And in the sprinkled blood of Jesus, the lost are saved. So the world didn't understand it till Jesus came. But guess what? We preach that now. That is the message. My gospel. Jesus died for me. Oh, I know He died for you. But Jesus died for Rick. That changed my life. When I got that, when I began to embrace and understand how much He loved me, I know He loves you, but He loves me more. How do I know? Because I sin more. Because as far as I'm concerned, I was worse off than you were. And Jesus loved me anyway. And that is my gospel. And it is the sprinkled blood of Jesus. I love the mentality. You know, I'm talking about an example here. And Paul is putting himself out there as our example. It's great to look at Christian leaders and Christian examples over the ages. I encourage you to do that. Read Christian biographies. Some of the most encouraging stuff you will read. Instead of reading 50 Shades of Grey, how about reading 50 different Christian leaders? I'm reading right now, I started this when I was sick, reading about D.L. Moody. I got a biography on D.L. Moody. He's an evangelist of the 19th century in Chicago. In fact, he worked primarily in an area in Chicago that was known as Little Hell. That's where Moody went. Moody decided as a young man that he was not going to let a single day go by without talking to at least one unbeliever about Jesus. That, that was his, his thing. Every day I need to at least tell one non-believer about Jesus. And he stuck to that. One night he's walking home. It was near midnight. He's walking through Little Hell in Chicago. And it had been a long day for Moody, a very busy ministry day. And he realized, I haven't talked to a lost person yet. So on the street, on the way home, at midnight, he runs across this man. He walks right up to him and he says, Sir, are you ready for heaven? Which is a great opening line. (laughs) Sir, are you ready for heaven? And the man caustically replied, Mind your own business. To which Moody replied, Sir, that is my business. I love the attitude. Preach the gospel. Preach it now. And the greatest power, and we've got to learn to trust this, the greatest power that the Spirit wields in you and in me is the preaching of the gospel. And He will do other amazing things. Don't discount the power of the Holy Spirit. But the primary power, the greatest power, is to speak the gospel where otherwise you probably wouldn't. Where otherwise I probably would be a little too shy to bring it up. But the Spirit empowers to speak the truth. Think about it this way. If you have the power of the Spirit, if by the power of the Spirit you heal somebody, they're going to get sick again. If by the power of the Spirit you raise somebody from the dead, they will die again. Unless the rapture happens. But if you preach the Gospel, you put a seed in a heart that can spring into eternity. That's power. And that's the kind of power that Paul keeps talking about over and over. I am not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes the Jew first and also to the Greek.